500 years ago he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck and upon the skull of the man who killed his dad he said i'm mad i must eradicate piracy injustice and cruelty and all my sons will follow me so evil doers will believe that this man cannot die the phantom the ghost who walks the phantom enemies beware the phantom's always there but you won't find the phantom he finds G'day everybody, and for those who have come in late, you're listening to X-Band, the Phantom Podcast. My name is Jermaine, and tonight I am joined by nobody. Yes, you've heard it right. Dan and Stephen have left me high and dry, um, but that's okay. We, I think we've got a better replacement, than it's. I think we've got a better replacement uh, for these two. So without any further ado, let's uh, introduce tonight's, or today's special guest, uh, David Bishop. Dave, how are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. Yeah, good. <laughs> That's good. So for those who do not know, David Bishop is uh, a Kiwi by birth. Yep. But a uh, a Pom. Can I call you a Pom? No, uh, no, no. <laughs> I may have lived in the UK for more than half my life, but Kiwi is as Kiwi does. Oh, that's that's good to hear. So, um. Yeah, and then you've been doing uh, Phantom Stories. You've done just under 50 of them, uh, including... You're probably, dare I say it, probably more known for your Kate Somerset series uh, in the mid-2000s. I've got, we've got a bunch of questions about that. So um, mm. do you want to introduce yourself? Um, uh, t- you know, talk a little bit about uh, being you know, born in New Zealand. Uh, did you read the Phantom as a, as a child? Um, were you raised on the brown costume, or did you know the fandom as a purple costume, and then how you came to uh, being in the UK, and and um, a little bit about that, and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I was uh, born and raised in New Zealand, and uh, I read comics off and on growing up, and I always remember the Phantom because the Phantom has a slightly strange association for me because it was the one thing that were I found to read in doctors' waiting rooms. Every, every doctor's waiting room in New Zealand seemed to have a stack of the Phantom, uh, the uh, the Fru Comics editions, shipped over by good old Gordon and Gotch. Um, and so if you were in a doctor's waiting room, there would always be a pile of the Phantoms waiting for you to read, because it was always a long time to wait in a doctor's waiting room. Uh, so that's how I started reading the Phantom, and that's when it was still uh, self-cover, so no glossy outside cover, just, you know, dodgy old newsprint the whole way through and I'm pre- in my head he's purple uh, so yeah okay, so, so you grew up on the you grew up on the fruit phantoms you didn't grow up on the feature publications ones where he's that dirty brown khaki type of colour no I'm pretty sure it was the the fruit the fruit comics and the reason why the fruit versions of the phantom uh, you could find them everywhere in New Zealand is because they were cheap as chips because, you know, because they're printed in Australia and shipped over, whereas in New Zealand, if you were buying Marvel comics, they had to come all the way from America. God forbid you were buying British comics, because you'd be reading the Christmas issue in April. <laughs> um, and I remember growing up, I used to, I liked the Marvel comics because they were colour the whole way through. Uh, DC comics we could only get, I think it, they were called Planet Comics, which I think was an Australian company that reprinted. DC comics, but in black and white with color covers. Um, 
and uh yeah and i read a few uh british comics as well but it was really hard to get a consistent run of anything so any sort of serialized storytelling was always problematic to follow as a reader because you never knew if you'd see another issue in fact most of the comics i read growing up i bought from book exchanges you know most book exchanges uh, second-hand bookshops would have a big box of comics and it was all like 10 cents ago or whatever the price of the day was and uh yeah that's how i read most of my comics so i read uh, the phantom off and on growing up um uh, uncritically i think i would say as a as a sort of seven eight nine year old boy it's like oh yeah that's good um and then after i left school i trained and worked as a daily newspaper journalist i did that for five years in new zealand and then i emigrated to the uk in 1990 uh, and fell into working in comics. Um, uh, basically, I, I arrived and I just applied for every job that was in the media job section on a Monday morning in the Guardian newspaper in England, in the UK. And one of the jobs was to work at uh, Fleetway, who published a 2008 comic and Judge Dredd. Uh, and I ended up getting a, a job there. I started working there in July 1990. They were launching a spin-off from 2008 called Judge Red Magazine, and that's still going, uh, I guess, we're knocking on 30 years later. 2008 has been going for more than 40 years now, and uh, sort of a lot of the big names in British comics who've gone on to be big names in American comics, like Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons and Mark Miller and Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman and Garth Ennis and, and a bunch of others, Frank Quietly, all sort of went through the 2008 charm school. Um, so I, I worked in comics for 10, 11 years as an editor, uh, freelance to start with. Then I was on staff for eight years and then I moved to Scotland in the year 2000 to go freelance again as a writer, but continued editing comics for about another, I guess, 18 months after that. And in that time, cause I, uh, Fleetway had been bought by Egmont. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, in sort of uh, 1991-92, we'd been owned by Robert Maxwell, who was a sort of uh, press tycoon entrepreneur slash crook uh, because he embezzled the pension <laughs> funds as it transpired. He went swimming off his boat and never came back. Uh, and Egmont had actually half-purchased Fleetway Comics at that point only because they wanted to get the Walt Disney license back. Because Egmont across oh, Europe yes. is famous for publishing Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. That's the, the thing they were best known for in the 90s and the 80s and then into the 2000s. They've sort of diversified a lot since then. But that was their big thing. So we would pinched the Disney license off them. So they bought us just to get the Disney license back. And in doing so, they acquired 2000 AD and Judge Dredd and a bunch of other random things, other licenses and original material. So anyway, so when I left, um, uh, I was sort of casting around for work as a freelance writer. So I ended up doing writing uh, material for a bunch of projects that Edmont were developing. So they were developing an Action Man comic based on a new cartoon series. I wrote for a Harry Potter comic that they were trying to convince J.K. Rowling to give them a license to produce, which never happened. But I'm one of the rare people who's gotten to write Harry Potter. Um, so even though it never got published, it was like, well, this is interesting. And at that point, I think we were only like three books into the series. So it really was quite a, a strange experience to be writing something while she was still writing the novels. And then I was looking around for other work in, at Egmont, at comics writing work, and they said, well, you could write for Donald Duck. And I was like, eh, I'm 
sure that's quite me. I mean, I did read Donald Duck comics growing up, but my favorite was always Uncle Scrooge. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, just the guy diving into the vault full of money. I thought, oh, that, that seems like the life to me. Um, you probably chose the wrong career for that, though. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, and then the other thing, they said, well, we're always looking for people to write for the Phantom. And I was like, oh, hang on. I read The Ghost Who Walks growing up. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. So I have to wrap my head around this. Because I hadn't read Phantom comics in, God, I don't know, 20 years probably by that point. Um, so I got in touch with uh, a man called Ulf Gramberg. He was the editor at Egmont uh, for about, I think, a good 10 years while I was writing for it. And had previously he'd been at Semek, who had been publishing, as you all know, fandom comics before they were acquired by Egmont. I think that's the chronology. So I got in touch yes. with Ulf and uh, said, hi, I, I'm a comics writer. I've been a comics editor and I'd like to pitch some ideas for the Phantom. And it took a few months of sort of back and forth to um, get to the point where I could pitch ideas to Ulf. I pitched him a bunch of ideas. He chose one of those, and uh, I wrote a draft script of that and submitted it. Um, and that was turned into my first issue I wrote for The Phantom, which was Convent Island, uh, which was published, I think, 2001 from memory. Yeah, and now Convent Island was when we first saw Kate Somerset, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as a as the abbess of the convent, as a sort of a an older woman towards the end of her life. Yeah, yeah. And so when you when you um, first wrote that story, did was it then just a, a one off? And then was it because of the popularity, this whole Kate Somerset Kate Somerset series uh, happened? Um, uh, it was only ever intended as a one off. Um, in my head, I was going to write sort of probably standalone phantom stories because when I was when I started writing for for A. Martin for Ulf on the Phantom, I was very much a case of I need to prove myself and prove my ability yeah. to produce different ideas, new ideas uh, that work within the the universe of the Phantom. But you have to you know pay your dues and sort of prove your chops as a writer and that you can give them what they want while still adding something original to the mix. So, uh, so my goal for the first few scripts I wrote for, uh, for Old for the Phantom was sort of show my range, show what I could do, come up with different ideas and also plug into gaps that they had because they had already had some regular writers on the book. Uh, and most of those writers, particularly if they were based, uh, in Sweden, uh, they, it was easy. They went to like people like, um, I'm not even sure how I, how you say his name, Kleis, I guess, Klaus, Kleis. Yeah. Um, he was one of the main writers. And so he was local, so he could have conversations with Ulf and they could talk about things. So they were sort of, they were in charge of the, the contemporary phantom stories. So I thought, right, in that, which case I will try and make a historical phantom. Maybe that could be my niche that I could write stories. And the historicals almost by definition tend to be one-offs or short contained series. So I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'll try and make that my niche. Um, and so I was pitching ideas for different stories. Uh, I've actually just uh, opened up my file of uh, uh, on the computer of all my old Phantom scripts and ideas that I pitched. And after the first story, Convent Island, I pitched one, two, three, four, five, six different ideas of what I could write next. Uh, the Pirate Queen, which I ended up doing. Uh, the Sing Sisterhood, which was a sequel to The Pirate Queen, which I also ended up doing. 
Uh, the Phantom Canoe, which was set in New Zealand in 1886, which didn't get commissioned. I proposed one about oh. the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, not yeah. my, not my Probably best idea. Scotland? Yeah, it's at <laughs> Scotland. Again, that was in 1707. Uh, one about, uh, resurrection men, so about people who were digging up graves, which I think I did do. I think it was called the Graveyard Murders or something. The Grave Robbers. The Grave yep. Robbers, yeah. So that one I didn't do. And one called Mark of the Phantom, which is a contemporary story. All the other ones I pitched were historicals. And Mark of the Phantom was the only one I pitched was contemporary, and, and Ulf didn't go for that one. So I sort of, at that point, I thought, right, okay, I'm obviously having more success with historical Phantom stories, so let's write more of those. Uh, so that's what I focused on. But it was actually, it was Ulf's suggestion to, uh, about bringing Kate Somerset back, because uh, the idea that, oh, you have this character, and she'd been a female pirate and involved with the Singh Brotherhood, and that's sort of ticking a lot of boxes. So why don't we why don't we explore more of those? So that's how we ended up with uh, the Pirate Queen storyline. That was his suggestion. Yeah. So um, were you comfortable doing more historical stories, or was it more of a just case of just if that was the the, the the hole that was there, so you just jumped into it and made the most of it? It's a bit of both. I mean, I quite enjoy historical because I enjoy research. Uh, and yep. it's, I always, I'm always finding out new things that I don't know because I'm stunningly ignorant. Um, uh, and, uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, when I left school, I did a short journalism course and then I just worked as a journalist and I didn't go to university till I was nearly 40. I did a yep. master's in screenwriting, although ironically, I'm now a university lecturer. They'll let anybody in, honestly. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, so it was, I would just leap into it and uh, sometimes Ulf would suggest an idea or a setting and then i go yep. off and do some research and write a story. So I wrote one story about, uh, which has got uh, Charles I, King Charles I, and he's been, he's a cavalier, he's being pursued by the Randy. So it was the English Civil War. And I did history for one year at school and I think we did Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, and I think we did the French Revolution, and that's my only knowledge of history, effectively, from the school. So all of these, anytime either I would propose a period or Ulf would say, how about a story set in insert name here, time period here, and then I'd have to go off and do the research. And, you know, when I was doing this, certainly in the first half of the 2000s, we didn't have Wikipedia then. So, you know, right. doing research was sometimes quite a challenge. Also, researching the history of the Phantom was often quite a challenge. There were some good resources available online, but I mean, the Phantom's got such a huge history and it's been going for yes. decades and decades and so I was having to work quite hard to try and tell stories that weren't completely in contradiction with accepted uh, mm. Phantom sort of uh, continuity or canon or whatever you want to call it. You know, I want to respect... <laughs> I, remember, I remember back in the forum days mm -hmm. you posted a question asking about who the 17th Phantom married or something like that. Yeah. And at the stage, like, you didn't introduce yourself as a writer or um, or, or anything like that, you know, writer for uh, Egmont and stuff like that. And then it wasn't until probably until the story kind of happened that uh, myself and a lot of others kind of put two and two together. So <laughs> I remember, I remember slide, you posting... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to get some, um, trying to get some help on on the fan forum and stuff like that. So I, I guess that is is a memory that I had of your research to, um, uh, you know, um, 
uh, your research of or your depth of research? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it, if you want expertise, ask the experts. And and uh, with comics readers, if they're passionate about a subject, then they will have dug in. They'll have done the research. They'll know the history. They'll also know the contradictions because you know, with mo- yes. any long-running comic series you'll end up with five different versions of the origin story or something that's like, <laughs> that's you know, choose your favorite version. Um, yes. you know, so I've been involved in various fandoms, uh, sorry, fandoms uh, over the years. So uh, I was involved in Doctor Who fandom growing up in New Zealand and, and various other things. So I know that you, know, you, try and, you try and come up with some sort of vaguely straight line, somehow a thread that runs through all the versions and you can make it stand up. But yeah, when I was... When I was developing the the Kate Somerset storyline, I was going, okay, well, I because the Convent Island story had been written as a one-off, and I, when writing it, had no intention that it was going to be. I then having to go back and tell her entire life story. Uh, it then meant I had to go back and try and, okay, how am I going to retrofit all of this in and make it work against the existing history of the Phantom? So one of my jobs was to try and figure out when each Phantom was born, when they died. To whom they were married, if you know Kate was going to have any sort of relationship with them, were romantic or otherwise, and then try and figure out where the gaps were uh, to sort of tell stories that would involve the relevant phantom. So I've still got this index card on my wall here. He says, taking it unpinned. So I had to do the the chronology. So 16th phantom, 1831 to 1869, married twice became 16th Phantom, age 17 in 1848, and so on. It goes on just to figure out when Kate's story would intersect with the relevant Phantom. Yes. All the way up to, uh, where we got, 18th Phantom. To the 19th Phantom. Yeah, yeah, died 1918, weird, etc. So it was trying to figure out where she could fit in around the, to sort of respect the continuity and the history of the Phantom and build a history for, for Kate. That would work within that context. So that was that was a bit of entertaining fun. Yeah, and there, from memory, there was some of that information, but it was all in Swedish. So you would have, um, you, because uh, there was nothing on Phantom Wiki, which is you know a website that a lot of uh, people use now. Yeah. Um, and then, and like you said, you know, the Kate Somerset was involved with three phantoms. Yeah. You know, the sixteenth, the seventeenth. Maybe even the fourth, if you include Julie Walker, yeah. uh, and then of course the nineteenth as well. So it was. I remember reading it, you know, and I've reread the stories countless times, and the, the amount of threads. Um, did you ever find yourself like? Did you did you have to change anything because of a certain thread or uh, a certain detail that you overlooked or anything like that? So I think the only problem, because I was able to sort of build it from the ground up, the only problem came when I actually got to the sequence, which is there's a flashback in Convent Island that sets up, uh, I think it's in Convent Island, there's a flashback. Anyway, there's a piece of history that's or continuity established in Convent Island, which I then had to ro- completely write my way around. Kind of didn't make any sense in the, the life story I built there. So I seem to recall there was a little bit of jiggery pokery would be the polite way to sort of dance around that one but for the most it's fine because i was sort of building my for the character uh yeah. yeah and most i think most of the kate somerset stories i think i'd like to think they all stand up there's one or two which feel slightly bolted on and less essential there's one where she goes to haiti which i don't think is the best of the bunch by any stretch of the imagination um i've got a vague memory of that one being a bit ho-hummy 
not everything's genius, unfortunately. I would love to say it's all genius, but I don't actually think most of it's genius. But you know, you want to write, you want to write a good story, you want to write an entertaining story, you want to give the artist something they want to draw. Because if you want to get the best out of an artist, then you give them something they're going to enjoy drawing. Um, and I've been very lucky with the artists I've had on the nearly fifty Phantom uh, uh, strips I've drawn so far. I'd like to go. You, I, I would I like think... to get to the round fifty, but we'll see. Maybe one day. Yeah, well, there's, uh, for, you know, there's free with publishing their own stories as well. So, um, you know, it will be good to get some more homegrown talent. Um, <laughs> we'll include you as homegrown. Um, Very kind. But with your, um, with your stories with the uh, Kate Somerset, a lot of the stories were done by Caesar Spadara. Um, mm. Did you ever deal with him, or because? For, you know, when I was reading it, I was, what was it? I would have been probably, I was late teenagers, early, um, early 20s, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, it, it seemed from a, to a novice that, you know, you two had, you know, were, you know, close and you were in each other's pockets and, and everything like that. It's not until later I realised you're in the UK and Caesar's over in Argentina or something like that. Did you ever talk to him, or no? I've never talked to Cesar. Sadly, Are we, well, I think we, ex- we've, I think we exchanged uh, sort of Christmas messages. He would send me little <laughs> drawings as a as a Christmas hello. Uh, but uh, I don't speak. No, hang on, Argentina is Spanish. Spanish. Brazil is Portuguese. Um, yes. So I don't speak Spanish, uh, and I'm not sure what his English is like. But I suspect his English is probably slightly better than my non-existent Spanish. But <laughs> so I would be writing scripts in English that they would go to Ulf or whomever's the editor, and then they would be sent to Cesar. But he would have to get them translated into Spanish for him. So as a consequence, I would always make I would try and write my scripts in a way that they would be relatively translation-proof. Yeah. Because um, I've I've worked in situations in the past. Uh, I, I used to uh, look after the it was a Judge Dredd newspaper strip, which was drawn by uh, I think he was a Spanish or an Italian artist, must be Spanish. His name was Carlos Pino, and there was one particular strip Spanish. where where uh, where Judge Dredd is attacked, and the script asked for Dredd to be attacked with a madman with a cheese wire who was trying to garrote him with this wire, except the wire bit got lost in translation. So when the artwork turned up, it was this guy trying to attack Judge Dredd with a big hunk of Edam. He was sort of stabbing him in the throat with this Edam from behind. And and we didn't have time to get the artwork redrawn. So we just had to roll with it and go Dredd would just say, Drock, madman attacking me with cheese. And just went, well, Judge Dredd, crazy stuff happens. So, you know, it is what it is. Oh, that is... I was one of the questions I was going to ask was about have you ever like written something and then seen it in print and kind of go yeah it's not what, what I intended. I have mine? No, I mean my one frustration has often been that when because uh, Fru very kindly sent me the a copy of the the Australian editions when my stories are reprinted in, into English in Australia because obviously I write them in English they get translated into. Swedish for the Swedish edition and in other languages for other language editions. But Fru is the only place in the world that my Phantom stories get published in English. But as I understand it, a lot of times 
they don't get sent my script. They just get the the final version. The comic, yeah, yeah. 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 And then it gets translated into English from that. So it's sort of it, <laughs> it's not a problem with the visuals. The visuals, I'm I'm always very happy with the artwork. I mean, some art style I prefer over others, but that's just personal taste. That's the storytelling yeah. is good, so I don't have any issue with the storytelling. I mean, I was a comic editor for ten years, and some artists I love more love their work more than others, but that's just taste. That's not storytelling. So I've no complaint over people's ability to tell the story. But there are times where I read the dialogue that I've written. Well, I read the dialogue as published in the Aussie edition, and I'm looking at it going, oh, I swear my dialogue is better than this. And it's just because <laughs> it's been into Swedish and back into English rather than straight from English to English. Because obviously mm. the dialogue and the captions do get edited by the editorial team for the yes. Swedish edition. So if they sent my original script direct to Australia, there might be differences between that and what's on the page. But... That would be my preference. If it was me, I would be sending the English language script as well as the Swedish edited version through. But I could see yeah. that would be a pain in the ass for them. So uh, that's a so, choice. But the so dialogue, maybe, I think it drives maybe through need to uh, contact you when they republish one of their story, uh, one of your stories, and just get the original uh, English. Yeah, it, that would be my preference. But I mean, you know, they're busy people. They're trying to get a comic out. I understand. I was a comics editor, and the last thing is to that I would do is be running around, you know, soothing the ego of some random writer on the other side of the world. You know, I am <laughs> no importance in the food chain. The work has already been produced. They're just trying to get, you know, stories on pages printed out in the shops. Sure. And that's their job: is get an issue out on time so you can sell it. And uh, the wants and needs of a writer on the other side of the world, I understand, are very far down the list of things they've got to get done. So I, I understand mm-hmm. perfectly. It would be my preference. But, yeah, so I read the dialogue and in, in, in the captions, and I just sort of go, oh, this is clunky, you know. So but it is what it is. Yes. Um, so you, you haven't written many stories in the last oh, probably five Seven eight years. Uh, is there is is there a reason behind that? Are you are you looking at doing more phantom stories, or is it just uh, like a the period a season in your life where other things have kind of crept in? And uh, looking at your credits, you've you've done work for Doctor Who, Judge Dredd, and, and and stuff like that as well with novels and stuff as well. So, is it just you know different seasons in your life, or? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it depends on whether I'm busy doing other things. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm. Let's have a look at my giant mega list of all the things ever. So yeah, Convent Island, that's sort of 2002. Quite busy there. Did all the Pirate Queens, 2005, six, seven, eight, nines. There's a big gap around somewhere in here. Hold on. Yeah, there was a couple of gaps uh at one point so i think around 2009 the amount i was doing slowed down dramatically uh and that was for a couple of reasons one i started doing uh screenwriting for i was writing tv shows for the bbc uh okay. so that was taking up a bit of my time unsurprisingly uh and yeah, what tv uh, shows were they sorry what tv shows were they oh so i wrote for a show called doctors which is a it's a half hour medical drama uh, and it's, uh, it's like, it's a little bit soapy, sort of half the show is, is the regular characters, which are sort of like the, the staff of a medical center, so doctors and nurses and receptionists and all the travails of their lives. So that's the soapy yeah. half of it. 
and then half of each episode is a standalone story and that's what the the writer of that episode brings to it you pitch the original story and you write that and that's about 15 minutes of an episode and then they give you the the b story and the c story which are the soap story the continuing drama storylines of who's yeah. doing what to whom so who's, today who's sleeping with who, who's who, who, who hates who, who, who loves who who's angry about something who's decided to become yeah. sexually experimental this week um because there's a bit of that um so uh yeah so i wrote just, i thought yeah it's just every tv show ever <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah, uh, so, so I started writing for that and I, I wrote four episodes for that over about a two, three year period. And then I wrote for, uh, a preschool show called Nina and the Neurons, which is a very odd mix of animation and live actors and real children. And it's about science. So it introduces scientific concepts to preschoolers. Okay, cool. I'm not sure whether that will have got to Australia. It's a great show, actually. They've done about eight series of it. Uh, so I wrote, 10 episodes for that and the other thing i started doing is i started teaching at university on a, a master's in creative writing at edinburgh yeah. napier university in scotland which is uh we focus on uh, like genre fiction so we teach uh writing science fiction writing fantasy writing crime fiction writing horror writing for young out young adult readerships and also i run a module in writing comics called writing graphic fiction using some of the skills i have hopefully acquired over the years to teach people <laughs> people who can't draw how to write for comics because there's a lot of books about <laughs> writing comics but most of them are for people who can also draw there's not many books yeah. about writing comics for people who can't draw but who have a visual imagination would love to write comics but who aren't talented artists so i did yeah, that. So, yeah. that. okay so talking about the way you write how do you write do you write like uh, page one, box one, or scene one, uh, this is what's happening, um, or are you kind of like more Marvel, where you kind of, Marvel style, where you kind of give a vague idea and you kind of more leave it up to the artist to interpret it? Interpret no, it. I, uh, for, uh, for Ulf and then Ulf's successors, they wanted a full script. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so it would be uh, panel one, uh, uh, exterior, the skull cave, uh, it's raining hard. Uh, monsoon-like, and, uh, you know, um, whoever the relevant um, uh, phantoms mate of, of whatever period we're set in is standing outside going, hmm, rain. Um, uh, and on we go from there. Uh, unusually, because uh, I've written for other publishers, and uh, for the work I do for Egmont on, on the phantom comics, uh, generally, you don't put page numbers in. Uh, oh, what okay. they asked me to do was literally just write panel one to panel, whatever it is, 242, and then stop. And so you don't write, uh, you don't, uh, it's kind of, because I was used to thinking of it in page terms and page layouts and those sorts of things, yeah. and making sure that we turn over and something surprising is at the top of the next page. But instead what they do is you write panel one to panel whatever the total is they would like. And then it's left to the artist to decide how big each picture is, how big it is on the page, uh, how much space they want. If they want to cram, I don't know, nine panels onto one page to give themselves a full page splash on the next one, then they can. So the artist has, it sort of, it gives the artist a bit more control over how the story's laid out. Whereas I'm used to writing, for other comics I write, you do very much, you know, bottom of page one, panel six. Uh, somebody pulls a gun on the Phantom and then, you know, Page two, panel one, but the phantom kicks it out of his hand, kind of thing. 
Um, so yeah. you you have more con- you take more control as a writer. So what they what I've been asked to do this, is write, yeah, and literally just panel one to panel X. And they also like to have they wanted to have an average of seven panels per page. Yep. Uh, and I'm used to like in British comics, it's usually an average of five to six panels per page. Whereas for North American comics, sort of superhero comics, it's more four to five panels per page. Bigger pictures, um, more action, less talk, unless you're Chris Claremont. Um, and uh, but British comics are slightly slightly more dense in their storytelling than American comics because actually the comics are physically larger than American comics are. And then for the Phantom yeah. comics, which is sort of American comic book size, they wanted an average of seven panels per page. Uh, so they wanted sort of more pan- more story effectively. Um, so that took a bit of adjusting to, and also the fact that you didn't have control over where the page turns were. So I had to adjust that. There were a couple of occasions where I sort of asked over in advance and I would say, um, for this script, I really would like to be able to specify a couple of full page splashes and like to specify where a cliffhanger is going to fall. And he was like, yeah, no, go for it. Okay. Um, so I did that yeah. for the story where, um, oh, in the middle, dog? the one where the, the, a phantom dies, whichever one that is, I can't remember <laughs> anymore. Probably phantom pirate queen two or three. Um, where one of the phantoms actually he dives in front and saves his his son. Death of a phantom. Yeah, that, we'll logically up. that we'll would just... be it, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that makes that a lot. Was, of sense. Um, hang on, it was printed in Australia in issue one three nine nine, which was two thousand and four, and Sweden Phantom in uh, number twenty three of two thousand and four. Yeah. So for that one, because I, I wanted to have sort of a couple of page mm. flashes of the big dramatic moments of one, he died in front of the bullet. I think that was one, or there was one of him sort of dying in the arms of the part of Kate. And I wanted to give those moments as much power and impact as possible. Yeah. Cause you could have done them as like, yeah, just a, you know, panel number seven on the page and it would have been, Oh, okay. But you give it a full page and suddenly it's like, Oh, so yeah. Yeah. So uh, there are occasions where I've asked for more. And you can ask for yeah. big picture, you know, when you do the opening page and it's the exterior of the sculpt yeah. table, whatever, and then you go for big establishing shot of da-da, and then we get on with it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that story. I didn't quite squeal like, ah, oh, like that. But uh, <laughs> I do remember I do remember having like, a, oh, my gosh, he, he, he's dead. Because I think from memory he jumped in front of the bullet of his illegitimate son. Yeah, you say the bullet Chris, was, yeah. Yeah, and um, so did you remember any reactions that you received about the Phantom having an illegitimate son? Uh, I got I got nothing. Uh, I, got, <laughs> I got absolutely nothing. the The difficulty is when you if uh, if you live in the UK, the Phantom is just not published here. It's just not yeah. available here. It's not published in a, a couple of uh, publishers over the years have tried. People who love the Phantom have tried to publish the Phantom in the UK, and it just it just doesn't sell. People have never heard of it. They don't understand it. It means nothing to them. They don't understand the history. It seems slightly arcane to somebody who hasn't grown up reading it. It's like, so there's what? There's a white guy, and he lives in the jungle, but he wears that outfit, and then he's and then he's like, so he's fighting crime, and there's pirates, but he's in the jungle, and then what? So for people who haven't read The Phantom, it's a little bit 
of a lot to take on in a, in one go. Mm. And, you know, uh, much as I like the, the 90s film adaptation, I'm not sure that necessarily is the perfect introduction either. Yes. But let's not even get to that one. Um, so, so yeah, so my difficulty... Well, you've done, you've done script. You've, you've done scripts for TV shows and all that. Um, are you the man to get a TV series off the ground? Uh, well, that would be lovely, but no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think I would need to be a far more established screenwriter than I am, or am ever likely to be. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think there's there's mileage to be had out of the Phantom. It's how you would want to do it, because so you, you have a choice with the Phantom. Either you are faithful to the source material, which means you have to tell stories on the the comic strip's own terms, or you have to be given free reign to completely adapt it into something that is purpose built to work for TV and for a TV audience. Because there are some comics that just that don't translate that well yeah. to other medium. I mean, you know, Watchmen's a great graphic novel. And weirdly, the aside from that, they don't have the psychic space squid attacking New York. They left that out of the film vision. The film vision is remarkably faithful, but it just doesn't work for my money. No. It, just, it just sort yeah. of sits there and coughs blood for a while. And you're like, eh, you know, what works as a comic doesn't work so well faithfully turn into a film you sort of you have to adapt the thing to the medium that you're operating in you can't just transpose it it has to be truly be adapted and that means changing things and the problem then is do you lose the original audience which was the basis on which you got the you persuaded somebody to pony up the tens of millions to make this or do you say we're just going to make our version of the thing and if the audience from the book comes with us nice but that's not who we're creating it for and that's the old, that's a dilemma that always faces anybody doing an adaptation of a, of a property from another form, another narrative mm. form. So, yeah, it would be great if somebody made a TV series of The Phantom. I won't hold my breath for that one. But, you know, there's like 500 scripted TV series being commissioned in America each year. So eventually Netflix is going to get around to it. <laughs> that's one way of giving us hope. Mm. Um the other thing with the Kate Somerset series, uh, sorry to keep coming back to it. But oh, no, that's fine. No, I, I've got like, a lot of questions. I, I mean, I've done whatever forty-six scripts, and I think Kate's and or her family is in nearly half of them. So, yeah. Now, in the Kate, in the Kate Somerset series, there was a lot of adult, th- a lot more adult themes. Was that something that um, uh, was that something that you put in? Was it um, did did any of it kind of get dulled back a little bit? Were you given rain to you know, like, in a sense, give the Phantom an illegitimate son, and then was, you know, like, you know, um, was was that anything, or was it just literally you just wrote the story and it was published? To a large extent, I wrote the story and it was published. Um, I mean, I sort of, it was a bit like, you know, I think if we just started, if the first Kate Somerset story had been, oh, look, the Phantom having sex, look, the Phantom's got an illegitimate son, it would have been like, bloody hell, Whereas it was more like, you know, we sort of, uh, there's some sort of relationship here and they've, they've got a past. And then we sort of, it's like standing at the side of the ocean and edging our way into it. And then suddenly you're like hip deep going, oh, okay, <laughs> there's more. Yeah. Um, so we edged our way into it. And also, I mean, aside from Convent Island thereafter, the, the stories, the, almost all the Kate Somerset stories are very different for the simple fact that they're told from Kate's point of view. Yeah. Uh, because they're told in the first person by Kate about the Phantom, 
because I like the I like my Phantom to be a proper legend. I like yeah, the Phantom to be a character who is kind of to an extent unknowable, and we all feel like we know him and we have a relationship with him, and he will do things, and we we have an expectation of what he'll do in pretty much any given situation. But mm. um, but I like to see the Phantom from the outside rather than having full access to all the Phantom's thoughts and feelings. I've written plenty of stories where we do have that, and that's fine. But I kind of like having the Phantom recast in the role as the legend, because if he is meant to be, you know, there's all the legendary stay, sayings about he's got the strength of ten tigers and all these other things. Well, for him to be that legendary character, that if you see his face, it's problems and, you know, all the other parts of the mythos. For me, I yeah. want to put the legend back into the Phantom and to build up yeah. and to see him through the eyes of others, because to me, that's that makes him more interesting as a character yeah. than sort of, I mean, I don't mind like him and hanging out with the twins and all of that, and I've written plenty of that. But I like my legend to be a bit more arm's length. Mysterious. And, and mysterious. I mean, that's where my yeah. actual tendency lies. The problem with that is it makes him a little bit of a humorless character, unfortunately. You know, legends don't tend to crack wise that often. And I wish some of my Phantom stories were funnier than they are. Um, but it's kind of, they tend to more, more towards the sort of sturm and drang. The, the blood and thunder end of the spectrum is naturally where my tendencies lie, and I might just the, embrace that. Yeah, that would be the Judge Dredd influence, wouldn't it? Uh, to an extent. Also, my natural tendency in most of my stories I write for almost anything is it usually ends badly for somebody. Um, if you're a guest character in one of my stories, sorry. You're probably dead. <laughs> you have my sympathies, but you wandered in to my imagination, and now you're going to suffer for it. Um so, yeah, most of my stories, we'll see characters get put through the mill a bit. I, I do like Diana as a character because because she's married to him. Uh, she has the capacity to sort of, you know, take the mick out of him and poke fun at him and sort of don't be so pompous, darling, kind of thing. And I like, so I like the rare occasions I get to write a Diana and Phantom story. It's it's nice when she gets to just sort of, you know, poke him and go, yeah, you're not all that, mate. Yeah. Yeah, and behind every yeah behind every uh, what's the saying? Behind every great man, there's um, a great woman. You know, there's a, yeah, a great woman. So um, yeah, probably the one thing that I that I struggle with a lot of writers with Diana is they just use her as a like a, a kidnap tool. Oh yeah, damsel in distress and all that. Yeah, it's just like you know she's only there to. You know, so she can get kidnapped, so they can build the story around it. Yeah, so, yeah. And basically, you know. the, it's the frigging of Diana. It's the the idea that basically she's there solely to motivate the Phantom into action. And you know, a the Phantom doesn't need to be motivated into action. That's the nature of his character. His entire mm. persona is to fight, you know, uh, tyranny and piracy and whatever the other thing is. You know, so that's his job. That's that's handed down from Phantom to Phantom. That's what we've been doing it for five hundred years. It's the family firm. You know. The family business yeah, yeah. is what we do. He doesn't need to be motivated to to take on bad people or people who are evil or manipulating or hurting others for their own benefit or for power. You know, that's what he does. He doesn't need to be motivated. So, yeah, Diana is damsel in distress. is a It's a bit of a lazy reach. I'm sure I've probably done it myself, cause, you know, <laughs> but nonetheless, I would aspire to better. I may not have achieved it all the time, but one can aspire. But yeah, yeah, that's it. So, do you have any other like before you said that you have kind of liked the uh, the historic stories? Mm-hmm. 
Have you got any other error years or errors that you know, given the chance, you would like to explore uh, heavily, like you did with um, uh, with the Kate Somerset series? Um, I mean, most a lot of the times, I've sort of uh, found myself responding to to prompts from Ulf when Ulf was the editor, or one story sort of logically flowed on from another. Um, so, I mean, I quite like the Robin Hood's stories. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I quite, I, that was quite fun to do. Uh, Hooded Justice. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then I like. You also did the Long Bow of Little John as well. Yes. Yeah, oh god, the research for that, I. You received, you received. Now, we had, um, on a podcast, probably a year, maybe 18 months ago, and he did say that he went, that, he went to the the town in Northamptonshire or, or something like that, and he saw the longbow. And then I think he said it was with a conversation with you, and you just took it to a new level or something like that. Yeah, because he, he'd been on uh, he'd, uh, he he did a tour around the UK, and I actually met up with him in Edinburgh when he was up in Scotland, and uh, and he talked about having been to this place where the the longbow. Uh, is meant to be buried in this grave. So I actually drove all the way down there, which was like three or four hours down and three or four hours back. I did it as a day trip just to go into this graveyard and look at the church and look at the the grave where it's meant to be and went, okay. So I stayed for about 10 minutes, took a bunch of photos <laughs> and then got into the car and just drove back again. <laughs> I've suffered for my art. Um, so yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, so did, yeah, slipped all the way down there, wandered about, went, uh huh, all right, looks like that, good, interesting. Walked in, looked around the church, fine, got back in the car, drove back again. Um, but yeah, it's sort of, it's things like that that I think add an extra element to the, to the story, to the mythos. And also, it was the, uh, I just love the idea of, uh, uh, the phantom, uh, being blind and then having to like, you know, he's so, he's so good that he can beat people. Uh, even when he's blindfolded because he can't see anything. Because I think that's the one where it, is that Longbow yes, Is that the, the one that's got the, the King Charles in it as well? God. Uh, Charles I of England, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's it. So it's all, because I knew nothing about English Civil Wars. So I had to research all of that as well. So that's in the mix too. And then I very quickly discovered that with the English Civil War, it's, uh, it's one of those, it's one of those wars where you go, I can sort of see both sides of this slightly and it's not clear cut and everybody's nobody's it's not like you know us versus Nazis where you can go bad guys um yes so it's slightly more complex than that and you've only got in those days 32 pages to tell the story so therefore you can't get too far into the history so therefore you have to cast somebody as the villain or the antagonist and then how do you plug the story from there but I mean the Longbow Little John for me was worth it just to write a the other thing I like to do with the Phantom is to find a way of taking away some of his strengths so that it's not, you know, he's he has to work that bit harder to win because, you know, we kind of know the Phantom's going to win, but we like to see him having to work hard for it. I certainly do as a writer. To me, it's more interesting to challenge him and to push him to his limits and to have him having to overcome seemingly impossible odds. So I do spend a lot of my time uh, hurting him. And then you did the Hood of Justice Part 1 and Part 2 where um, uh, he... He ends up becoming memory. sort of Robin Hood, effectively, by... Yeah, and that's where this, the, the legend comes from. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, with the Phantom historicals, it's I think the Phantom has in 500 years has been responsible for virtually every legend of the last five <laughs> centuries. It's like, oh, some guy turned up in a mask and then we called him the hooded man because he was, had a hood on. So, yeah. Um, so, no, no. I mean, it's I mean, the the last couple of stories I, I've written um, uh was the uh well there was the the earthquake one set in Zealand which was um inspired by actually going yeah. to Christchurch and and wandering around the city and that. seeing because yeah. that was I think I was there in 2013 which was two years after the big shake and yet you know it was still mm. there were still hundreds of buildings that were either half pulled down or with just holes in the ground and it was just wandering around the city going blimey you know and they were still getting tremors at that point um so that now you're you're from Christchurch, is that correct? No, I'm from I'm from the North Island. I'm from I was born okay, in North Cambridge Island. in the North Island, but basically grew up in Auckland. But I've got friends who live okay. in Christchurch. I'm actually going to New Zealand uh, next week for a month to go and see my family, and I'll be going down to Christchurch and uh, see my friends down there, and also go and pay my respects for uh, a terrible event of last events. week. Yes. Um, yes. So yeah, Christchurch is having a great time of it, but there it is. No, it's not. I've got uh, well, because my wife, well, she's from the North Island as well, but we do have friends and family in Christchurch as well. So um, yeah, it's they've suffered a little bit, haven't they? Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think the latest thing is having the effect of seems to be pulling the country together rather than driving it apart, yes. which is the best you can hope for from tragic events like that. So. Um, you know, from the outside looking at New Zealand as a New Zealander, it's sort of like oh, it's it's heartrending what they're going through, and you you want to be there with them, go through it with them. But I'll see, you know, I'll be out there in a week, and yeah, we'll see how things are. But uh, these things happen, unfortunately, yeah, so, the world we live in. Yes, unfortunately, you're correct, and um, yeah, um, uh, everyone, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone who's listened to this and because everyone's thoughts and prayers are out with the people that are affected with that. And, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you did write Red Zone. Now, you did make mention before that, was this uh, that you tried a, a another previous attempt, the Phantom with the Canoe? I'm assuming this will have something... Could you tell us a little bit about that story? I'm assuming it will have something to do with the Polynesians going down... The coast? Uh, no, actually, I, I can read you the synopsis oh. that got turned down. Yeah, please. Because <laughs> it's right in front please. of me. So, yeah, so it's called yes. the, the Phantom Canoe. The Phantom visits Australia and New Zealand during the 1880s, creating many interesting story opportunities. Very subtle there, David. Um, uh, one of these could revolve around a true historical event. In June 1886, a group of visitors on the shores of Lake Tarawera uh, a Maori war canoe appears from the mist gliding across the water. The men on the boat do not respond to calls, uh, and the local tribe has no war canoes. Only hours later, a massive eruption buries the village of Te Wairoa, like a modern-day Pompeii, and the eruption also wiped out the pink and white terraces, which was a tourist attraction that drew visitors from around the globe and was rated as one of the world's scenic wonders of the Victorian age. And the plot would show the phantom rescuing people from the eruption while fighting a crime, perhaps a murder. Uh, <laughs> delightfully in specific, this. Uh, I have lots of reference about the event, including before and after photographs. So the idea was oh, wow. the phantom was going to be uh, in this village 
And then the what what actually happened is is the story is that a ghost war canoe floated across uh the lake in front of a bunch of tourists, came out of the mist and disappeared again. And that was taken to be uh, uh an omen of something terrible was gonna happen. Uh the Phantom Canoe disappeared and um, the Maori people would say it was an omen of evil and then this eruption took place a few hours later and the village was buried in lava and ash and it really was like Pompeii. Um, and uh, so like dozens of people died as a consequence of it but I thought it's a great setting for a story to you know in the midst of all of this the Phantom's like trying to solve a crime mm. while saving people at the same time but and so this Phantom Canoe is actually like it's actually called a Phantom Canoe yeah it's actually called the Phantom Canoe yeah um, I think it just rides itself you would have thought and yet I did not manage to sell that one to Ulf unfortunately well I know I, you know, to be to be fair to to be fair to Alf, you know, they're you know they are it is a, a European market now. If you pitched it to maybe the free, which is the Australian, New Zealand, South Pacific area, it might uh yeah, we might have to pitch that idea to Fru, eh? Well, yeah, if they they feel the urge, I'm 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 happy to write more Phantom stories. I've I've, I've got forty six under my belt. I would love to get to fifty. Uh, I mean, I've only written about five or six and almost in the last 10 years just because I've been busy doing other things screenwriting uh teaching I'm doing a PhD at the moment for my sins um so I've sort of been busy doing other things uh but uh yeah I I would love to write more phantom stories so I think the last one I wrote was David tries was uh red zone red zone oh yeah yeah yeah, we're doing red zone uh and I there was another pitch which I had in which uh the current editor uh, quite liked. Mikhail Soul. Yeah. Um, and I, I was going to do that film, which was, would have been a sequel of sorts to. Is that with the Marshall sisters? No, no. It was going to be a sequel to Citadel of Demons, which is the one set in the prison. Okay. There was a story set in the prison and it was a bunch of, uh, a Chinese delegation was being toured around this state of the art uh, prison they built. Yeah. And there was a, a woman who was a young woman, and she was translating for them. And then, of course, it all—it's a—it's a automatic prison that all goes horribly wrong. Uh, so she was having. And you know, why would you ever visit a prison? You know, if you visit a prison, something's going to go wrong. Well, I've done—I've as a writer, I've been a—I've a, taught workshops in prisons, and so far, nothing's gone wrong. So I've been into enough prisons <laughs> that I've got out fine. But obviously, uh, if you're in a, visiting a prison in a story, then you're in trouble. With the Phantom. With the Phantom, you're in real <laughs> or trouble. Or another hero, you're, you know you're going to be in trouble. You're, and if it's, it's like, David, if it's David Bishop writing it, you're probably going to... Uh, it's going to be badly for at least several people. If you're lucky, <laughs> he might, you might be the one character he likes besides the Phantom. You might get out alive. So yeah, so the, the, the translator character from that who had some skills with martial arts, I seem to recall, um, yes. the idea was to bring her back. She was going to have joined the uh, Jungle Patrol in the okay. yep. liaison with the Jungle Patrol and then there was going to be, I think it was going to be corruption in the Jungle Patrol and so it was the Phantom Ooh. the theater. There was, there was, things were going wrong because he hadn't been keeping an eye on the Jungle Patrol. That was the pitch. Uh, so I'm still waiting to get around to write, uh, get back to that story at some point. Oh, well, I look forward to that. I think from memory there, there hasn't been many incidents where um, there's corruption in the Jungle Patrol. Yeah, and, you know, it, to me, the Jungle Patrol's great. It's a brilliant uh, uh, sort of support mechanism. But it also strikes me, not everybody's noble, sadly. 
Um, yes. And so, therefore, there's the possibility that somebody, you know, you give the wrong people power. You may not even realize that they're the wrong people, and it may not be until yeah. they get hold of power and it starts to warp them. That, you know, you give the wrong person power over others and they will use that for their own benefit, not for the greater good. And that's, to me, the Jungle Patrol has the potential to be abused like that. And I thought that could make for an interesting story. So we'll see. Maybe yeah. one day. No, I like, I like the sound of it. Yeah. Now, so with, with the Red Zone, was it... Because this is the first time that the Phantom has actually, at this stage, mm-hmm. uh, visited New Zealand until this other story, uh, Phantom Canoe, gets uh, published. Yeah. Um, does that, does that uh, give you a bit of pride, the fact that, you know, that you were the first person to to write a story, you know, and New Zealand's got such a rich history with the Phantom, um, to be able to, you know, see the Phantom finally visit the, uh, the you know, what is it? Uh, land of the Long White Cloud. The Land of the White Long Cloud? Yeah, Land of the Long White Cloud, yes. Oh, yeah, no, I, I've been right. I mean, that's why I pitched the Phantom Canoe, like, <laughs> 17 <laughs> years ago. I was determined... Eventually, I was going to persuade some editor to buy a phantom story of me where the phantom goes to New Zealand. By hook or by crook, I was going to get there. Uh, I, I couldn't sell Ulf on the idea, but I thought... And then when Ulf left, and then they sort of there was a bit of a turnover of editors for a, for a short while there. Uh, and as a consequence, um, there weren't really writing slots available. But then when it settled back down again, and I was like... And uh, I thought, right, now's my chance. So I pitched uh, 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 the current editor, and he was like, yeah, no, that'd be good. I was like, yes, finally, finally. <laughs> Victory is mine. We've actually, um, we've actually got Mikel Sol, uh, the editor that you're talking about, uh, on a future podcast uh, coming up in the, um, in the next week or two as well. So. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, well. Uh, so have you already talked to him? or? No, it's coming up. Oh, cool. Well, well, say hi from me. I've never actually met. In fact, I don't think I've even talked to him on the. Maybe I've talked to him on the phone. I can't remember. I used to have a good old chin wag with with Ulf back in the day. Um, but yeah, well, and you talk to him. I'll just put a dibs in here. Feel free to mention my name in dispatches and tell him to buy more <laughs> stories from me. That would be fine. Okay. Well, uh, Shame, I think shameless fish. I think occasionally he does listen to the podcast as well. So. Um, oh yeah. Well, I'd so, love to uh, do more. Four and then I know Glenn and Dudley listen to the podcast occasionally as well, so maybe they'll listen to this one and they'll go, Phantom Canoe, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. I think I did, I think I pitched the Phantom in Australia story as well, and I think that got turned down, but I honestly oh. can't remember. I suspect he was probably, it was something to do with Uluru. I'm, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it would have been Ears Rock. I am that subtle, honestly. <laughs> He's going to Australia. Where could he go? It's either the Sydney Opera House or it's Ayers Rock. There's not... Where else is he going? There's not much else. Is that what you're trying to say? (laughs) (laughs) You you do have a lot of desert. I mean, you know, let's not deny it. (laughs) Yeah, and we've got more sheep than uh, New Zealand as well. Well, I'm not going to say anything because I'm not going (laughs) to stir the Tans Tresman pot anymore. It doesn't need my help. (laughs) So have you ever been to Australia? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, living in New Zealand, you can't really get to anywhere else. Um, so when I was growing up, uh, my one of my brothers was in a rugby league team when he was, I don't know, nine or ten. So they went on tour and played in Australia. Um, so we went over with them. So I used to go over to uh, Sydney about once every three or four years, I guess. I went to Melbourne yeah. once growing up, and then we drove from Melbourne to Sydney. Oh, my Lord, that was a mistake. 
three brothers, three young boys in the back of a car driving from Melbourne to Sydney. There was no fighting whatsoever. <laughs> oh, that was a mis- that was a serious error of judgment on somebody's part. Um, and then uh, my sister lives yeah. in uh, Geelong, south of Melbourne. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, the last time I was over in New Zealand, we stopped in um, we stopped in Melbourne on the way over to go and see her because I hadn't seen her in, in donkey's years. And uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've been to Sydney a lot, and I've got relatives in Sydney. And then now I've got my sister down in, in sort of uh, Victoria, I guess it is. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. So now with your other with your red zone story, you introduced uh, three new characters um, uh, called the Marshall Sisters. Mm. Um, now the question when I was reading this and when I uh, saw the like um, saw it in the Phantom Man comic and then in the free comic and all that. Are these girls related to the original Marshall sisters? They are. Um, the one thing which I didn't quite get straight with uh, the editor before I wrote it was uh, in my head the original Mark because like the original Marshall sisters are from like the thirties or the forties or something, so they've got the sort of yes. the you know they've got the old hairstyles and the whole thing, so they're real sort of you know platinum blonde bombshells. Well, not platinum blonde, but you know what I mean. Um, and then when I was writing the the modern Marshall sisters, I thought, for me, in my head, the fact that the current Phantom has been alive for like ten thousand years is slightly problematic. <laughs> um, and I know it's all meant to be one long continuity of the twenty first. It is the twenty first Phantom, isn't it? I've lost track. Yes. Um, yes yeah. It is. So the twenty first Phantom seems to have been in the job for about a hundred years now, um, which I'm like. Um, but we'll just gloss over that. So when I was writing, I, in my head, these Phantom Sisters, uh, Marshall Sisters, were like the granddaughters of the previous one. And in the end, it was like, no, they can't. Uh, no, it's all one long thing. You can't make them the, the grand. Otherwise, our Phantom is like, now like 92 or something. So yeah. uh, I just Which sort of... he's in real years. But, yes. Uh... Yeah, he's he's operating some sort of anti-dog years or something. Um so yeah, they are they're meant to be related to the original Marshall sisters. It's all one enormous clan of I don't know, uh dangerous women. Yes. Maybe so the, maybe the cousin or something. I don't know. But yeah, I would I would love to the idea with the Marshall sisters was to for those to in, to sort of reintroduce the idea of the Marshall sisters, these, you know, strong, self reliant women who are uh dangerous who uh, have them, you know, they're willing to break the law to get what they want, but they're not going to kill people to do it. So they, I, I like them because they're sort of, you know, they're morally interesting characters to me. And uh, and also, you know, they can hold their own in a fight, so that's always a winner too, uh, if you're doing a, an action-adventure story like The Phantom. So, yeah, I'd, I'd happily bring them back. I thought they were good fun. Yeah, no, I enjoy them as well. Like, you know, like they, they kind of match The Phantom, you know, physically... Yeah, uh, but also with like, the first one, so it makes for a good fight. Yeah, yeah, and then like you know, like so you know, and the, and the way they did it is like they posed as uh, civil workers, and you know, and, and and then at the end where they rescued the other one, they posed as paramedics and stuff like that. And only due to the Phantom's uh, interest in fashion uh, that he was able to identify the uh, Marshall sisters. <laughs> Well, you know, he is the fashion plate, obviously, so, yeah. <laughs> a talent that I never knew existed. 
Well, there you go. He's a man of many gifts. Yeah, yeah. And I liked it how Diana even had a bit of a dig at, uh, dig at him as well. Like what you're saying before. It's like, oh, I didn't know you were a fashion fashionista. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you've also written a couple of stories featuring Sandal Singh. Now, there, there, there tends to be a bit of a, um, a thread that you, uh, the Phantom, you know, always come, when he's been written by you, he always comes up against, uh, strong women mm. um, so have you got any thoughts about Sandal Singh did you enjoy her as a character or yeah I mean I, I, I really enjoyed writing for her because again it's about a, because the Phantom sort of this legendary character and yet he's a, just a mortal man despite everything else and I like pitting him against the character who can absolutely go toe to toe with him um, so somebody like Kate Somerset or, or Sandal Singh uh the idea that, uh, you know, they're no, they're no, they're no wallflowers, they're no damsels in distress. Uh, it's the way mm. Diana should be written is they should be strong, independent characters of their own right who can do what they want. And they've made a particular set of moral choices about what they are and aren't willing to do in order to, uh, achieve what they want. So with Sandal Singh, she's like, she's sort of dragging the Singh Brotherhood into the 21st century and she's having to do some things that she maybe doesn't want to do, but she's, you know, she's quite ruthless about it. But equally, you know, because of the relationship between the Singh Brotherhood and the walks and that's gone on for so long and she can sort of see past that and yet in time there's a, there's a free song. There has been at times a free song between Sandal Singh and uh, the current Phantom, which I think makes for an interesting combination because it just, it puts something else at stake in the story and it means mm. that, you know, one character can turn the other character's head at the moment or they may feel oh, they're not all bad or they're not, you know, they're not just a goody-goody. There's something more going on here. So I always like, for me, my favourite stories involve either temptations or dilemmas. So uh, where you put a character where they have, two terrible choices and they have to pick one of them they can save one thing but not the other or they can save a group of people but not everybody at the same time or you have a character yeah. who's a good character who does the moral thing but you tempt them with the possibility of something else and see whether or not they will slip and how far they will be tempted because then it helps to add for me it adds a bit of depth to them as character they're not just you know, a man in, in an outfit going around fighting tyranny and piracy and injustice I'm fine but then it adds something else. There's the possibility that they could slip, they could fall. They're a human being rather than just a robot in a costume. Absolutely, that's it. And to me, that's that's more interesting. Me, for me as a writer, I, you know, the character has to have some depth beyond just going through the motions because otherwise it is just like turn up, punch, leave. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's um, Sandal Singh uh, has just had a baby and then there... Um, uh, there's the, the, the off chance that it could be the Phantom. So that's where that kind of storyline, and she's lost the presence, the presency as well. So that's kind of where we are in that, in that ongoing storyline at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was being talked about. I seem to recall a bit like Diana, if you have a baby in, in Phantom continuity, it will last for three years before it finally comes out. Um, <laughs> that's the unfortunate the side ocean, effect that time flows so much more slowly in the world of the Phantom. <laughs> so be oh. careful what you wish for in having children. <laughs> with uh, a wife that's just, um, uh, we've just had our second child. Um, I'm glad 
that was only nine months and not, <laughs> uh, and not three years like uh, Paul Sandal. In Paul the, Sandal uh, just in just the, going on in the free stories, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, I mean, it's it's it, it is tricky because I mean, obviously in the in the the Egmont comics because they now having to run so many reprint issues, um, so that means that it, momentum for things like you know the Sandal Singh subplot gets dragged out far longer than it would normally do. Whereas, you know, I think when I started writing, uh, for, for Egmont, you know, it's like 2001, but at that point, they only did one or two reprint issues a year. So mm-hmm. they could set up these big sort of sprawling sagas, but they could run them quite quickly. Um, whereas now yeah. it, it gets dragged out over a lot longer time, which means the problem is you, the danger is you lose momentum. So there was, there came a point when I was, cause I used to write a lot of two and three part stories, which was great. Cause you'd come up with a, a big complicated story and then you'd have a big cliffhanger at the end of an issue, come back in two weeks time for what happens next. That's great. But then we sort of, the shift was towards because of having to do more reprints meant you only got to tell one off stories for the most part, which is fine, but it means you have to wrap it all up in one. And, you know, I quite liked writing multi-part stories. I like serialized storytelling. That's more where my natural tendency, uh, lies. Um, and also now, of course, the stories are only, what, 22, 24 22, pages yeah. long. And it used to be 30, 32. So that alters the nature of the kind of stories you can tell because even with seven panels per page, you know, you've got a hundred and, you know, 140, 154 panels that you could possibly have when you used to have, you know, 214, I think, was the number I used to work to. So by definition, your story is only two-thirds of the length it used to be. Um, so you have to tell a more uh, contained story Content, yeah. and it'll be, you know, beginning, middle, and then get a lot closer together, which is a sadness, but whatever the economic realities are, this is what they are. So, yeah. Do you find it harder? to write a story in shorter panels or pages? Um, no, it just you you have to be aware of the, the length that you're working to when you design the yeah. story, because otherwise you just it becomes too compacted and everything gets crushed down. So if you want to allow room for character moments as well as plot points, you know, any scene, a sequence of panels or a page, what you would like it to do is advance the plot and hopefully reveal something about a character at the same time. Now, the Phantom is effectively unchanging. You can't really, you can't alter the, the, the nature of the Phantom. He's a fixed point, but he's what we call on the, the MAO and teach on. He's an agent of change character. The Phantom turns up and he changes the lives of the characters he interacts with, but the Phantom himself doesn't generally change. Mm. So to have yeah. those character moments for the supporting cast, you need to allow room for that. And in order to do that, the danger with, uh, if you go from 32 pages to 22 pages, if you keep the same amount of plot, then all you have time for is plot and you don't have as many character moments. So you have to have a smaller, a slightly smaller scale plot to allow room for characterization to have a bit of impact on the reader to give a sense that change has occurred for characters, not just dead or alive, jail, not jail, but actually that they have been impacted by their experience of meeting the phantom, for better or for worse. Depending upon the nature of their motivations, so it's it's a challenge. It's I mean I like constraint. I don't. I for me the worst thing in the world is you could say to me, 
write a phantom story. It could be 10,000 pages long because I go, how do I fill that up? That's impossible. <laughs> Whereas you go, it's yeah. 22 pages long. I go, fine, okay, I know exactly what I'm working to here. So therefore, I need to, you know, by the end of page five or six, then there needs to have been a twist of some sort and, oh, no, it's different. And then the midpoint, ah, no, it's different again. And then we need to build towards a big climax, whatever that's going to be. So you you very quickly start to put in the building blocks of your story that will take you from X to Y to Z um, and a certain question you have to answer. So in in the Red Zone story, you know, the Phantom is not from New Zealand. He's just visiting. He's discovered something's happening. He thinks there's going to be a crime. Well, then the first thing you do is you go to the police and say, I think there's going to be a crime here mm. because I have information. Now, whether you're credible <laughs> becomes another problem and then on you go from there. So, but yeah, you kind of have to have that moment where you have to recognize, well, this is not my territory. I'm just visiting and it's not my job to stop people doing bad things unless they do it right in front of me and I happen to be there. So you have to go through the, the point where he has to try and share this information and if nobody else is going to act on it, then he has to say, well, I can't let this happen. Therefore, I must do this. So therefore, he has to be, you know, you have, yeah. to, you, have to, you have to make his motivation for acting credible in the context of whatever the story is. So that's the challenge. But yes, so 22 is just another constraint. I mean, I'm used to, I spent a long time editing uh, for 2000 AD and Judge Dredd, where most of the stories are only five or six pages long per episode. So I'm used to thinking in very uh, compressed storytelling terms. So that's not an issue uh, for me. Yeah. And even 22 pages is still longer than most American comics. So the difference is the Phantom yeah. stories have to be largely standalones. Yeah. So that's well, with, a challenge. With American comics, there's, I think there's more ads in there than actual comic. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. But they, get, they get about 20 pages of story and then a load, and then 12 pages of ads. But the, the difference there is you don't get many issues of American comics that it's a complete story that's beginning, middle, and yeah. generally part one of six because they're writing a story that's going to be collected in a graphic novel trade paperback yeah. collection uh which sadly doesn't happen with the the phantom uh you know ideally no. somebody did a big phantom chronicle collection of all the kate somersets or all the good kate oh, somersets yeah. back in one big box I don't, I don't <laughs> you can leave one yeah. or two of them, but yeah um well through publications have started producing uh trade paperbacks um oh, cool. they've Produced three at this stage, I believe. Uh, one of them was um, like for those who come in late, so it's like all the origin stories. So like how the ring came about, um, you know, like you know, all, all the story of Devil, those type of ones. And then there was a yeah, yeah, and then there was another one where they um, picked like three classic stories, and then they got new creators to do like sequels to those stories. Cool. Uh, and then there was, um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but Fru's also doing a Kid Phantom, and then I think the first six yeah, issues was collected in a trade paperback as well. Oh, cool. Oh, that sounds great. So, oh, well, hopefully I'll see some of those in a, they might have them in a New Zealand comic shop while I'm over in New Zealand. I might spot one of those and nab one of those. Yeah, yeah, well, if you, you know, if, it, if you ever see anything that you need or, or want or something, or you're missing one of your stories or something, just let us know and um, uh, I can send some stuff over as well. Well, that'd be cool, because like I say, 
there ain't nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when I when I am writing for the Phantom, I do feel slightly shouting into the void because it's just like <laughs> nothing. I I just do the work and it's published. I mean, it's kind of nice in that nobody in the UK knows that I do it, so nobody's sitting there going, oh, oh, "We've done that again, has he?" You know, nobody knows or cares. <laughs> so I could do what I want and just have fun with it and enjoy it for its own sake. So that's great. But it is, you know, you, you know, it's nice to be appreciated or at least know that somebody's reading your work somewhere because writers want to be read, artists want their work to be seen. So, uh, Exactly. We've all got that little uh, person on our shoulder that um, uh, likes to be told that we're doing a good job. Yeah, a little bit of validation goes a long way. It does. So, uh, so David, you're doing a good job. I've always enjoyed your stories. Uh, <laughs> you're just saying that now. <laughs> no, no, no. I've, I think I've actually told you that before as well during our uh, communications throughout the years as well. Cool. Um, now, some of the, uh, the artists you've, who have drawn your story, so there's, you know, there's uh, Spadara, there's Ryan, uh, LePan, McLeod, Boots. Selvaludo's done some of mine. Selvaludo, Bade, Filming. Um, and Alex Saviuk and also um, uh, Rua as we did the Red Zone as well. Do you have any particular, you know, like when you've gotten your copy of the comic and you've seen their art and you just go, wow, they've really done my work justice or wow, they've really knocked this out of the park. Any, you know, any of those stories or artists that have just, you know, uh, done your work justice or hit it for six? Yeah, <laughs> could be terminology. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always love what Spadari did with uh, with with Kate Somerset. He always did some amazing stuff. I was always amazed at how much the female pirates spent most of their time falling out of their tops. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't uh, that, that wasn't was not written in into the script? the script that everybody was constantly falling out of their tops. I was like, okay, Cesar, that's a choice that you've made creatively. <laughs> Fine. I think I think well, so. You can distract the people you're fighting, presumably. <laughs> and yet, I noticed that the, the you know the male pirates don't wander around with sort of like you know arseless chaps on or anything. Um, <laughs> maybe that's a style yet to be introduced. <laughs> Whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, aside from that, although I did notice that when they got reprinted by Free, sometimes there would be mysterious shadows falling across certain parts of the anatomy of the characters uh, in order yeah, to try, especially um, slightly oh, more. Was uh, the first, she was the was it Anna? Yes, yeah. The first mate was like just constantly topless. I'm going, oh come on. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean I love what he did with with uh, the character of Kate and uh, the, all the high seas stuff was great. So I can hardly complain about that. Um, I mean, I, I, I was really—I've been really lucky with the artists I had work on mine. Um, I remember uh, Paul Ryan stuff uh, was just stellar. Uh, I think Bob McLeod only did one of mine, but I did really like his work on that because he did like. Because I remember, for me, it was a little fanboy moment because I grew up reading things like the New Mutants, and he was the first artist on the New Mutants. Oh, okay, centuries wow. ago, before uh, before Bill Sienkiewicz did the amazing stuff with the Demon Bear. For all you New Mutants fans out there, uh, but I'm, I'm a particular fan of uh, Sal Valuto's work. Actually, uh, yep. his stuff is just uh, just gorgeous. It's like it reminds me of sort of classic Neil Adams, 
artwork from the 60s and the 70s. It's just, I just love his work. Um, he did the, I think he did the Death Peddlers or maybe the Slavers of Cinnabar. And he just did some just, just completely stellar work on those. They were just wonderful. He did the Phantom Army, ah. uh, Blood Blood Diamonds, The Witch Hunt, mm. and the first Hood of Justice story as well. Yeah, yeah, and the Death Death Peddlers as well. So he's done a few of yours. Yeah, I just I, I loved his stuff. His stuff was great. I mean, his was his was a much more sort of American style as opposed to a continental or a Latin American style of Phantom, where it's which is what a lot of the artists who've been who've worked on my scripts have been. Yeah was more traditionally uh, American superhero comics kind of style, but it was just a lush detail and it just felt very real um, mm. and a bit less cartoony, uh, and that really appeals to me. But, I mean, you know, I've been very lucky with the artists I've had, so, I, yeah, no. Awesome. Now, you, you've told us a little bit about some of the history that you've had with some uh, UK characters like uh, Judge Dredd and, and stuff like that. Do you ever think that there's a, uh, a potential now? I know there's the whole legal reasons and copyright issues and stuff, but do you ever think there's a, like a couple of those characters would be a good crossover um, companion with the Phantom? Ooh, well, there's an interesting question. I mean, Judge Dredd's done a few crossovers over the years. They had uh, Judge Dredd Aliens, and he's fought Batman about five times now. Um, yeah, because, I mean, basically Judge Dredd is just a guy I mean, he doesn't have any superpowers. He's got some technology behind him, but he's basically just so a guy. basically the UK version of Batman. A little bit, yeah, but with <laughs> the, the difference in that he's not like a vigilante. He's dressed up as a flying rodent. Um, <laughs> That's right. He's actually a... You know, he's actually yeah, a policeman. He's basically, you know, yeah. hardcore policeman of the future. Um, so I could say... Uh, I mean, you know, uh, if we got to, like, I don't know... Because Judge Dredd's always 122 years in the future. That's the the rule of the strip. It's always 122 years in the future. So if it's okay. 2019 here, therefore it's 2131, I guess. 19? I say 122? Uh, anyway, 2141, something like that. Um, so it would have to be, I guess, the 24th or the 25th Phantom, some future Phantom it would have to be. Mm. But yeah, no, I could absolutely see that um and they have had things like uh pirates of the black atlantic in uh judge dread so yeah i could see i could see the two characters not getting on quite hard <laughs> yeah they're very different um styles in dealing justice uh yes i mean they do both believe in you know fighting injustice and piracy and tyranny their methodologies are quite different. You know, I mean, we're talking about the Phantom as a guy who's had two guns on his hips for the last, you know, 80 years and never seems able to shoot somebody. Um, or if he does, he's just in the hand or the shoulder or in the gun. Um, yeah. Which is always like, why are you carrying those guns? You never use them. Um, but that's part of the strip. You know, it's, he doesn't kill people. That's not the nature of who he is as a character. You have to respect that. Um, so fine. Whereas Judge Dredd has no compunction about pulling a gunner and executing somebody on the spot if they, in his judgment, deserve execution due to their crimes. So yeah, yeah, that's going to cause you some difficulties if you're the Phantom. If you're you know the ghost who walks and you happen to be walking through Mega City One, I don't think that's necessarily going to go well for you. But still. Mm. So 
side topic from the Phantom, the last Judge Dredd movie, the little um, the one that was basically just based in that one building. Mm. Uh, were you a fan of that? Oh, yeah, I thought that was great. I mean, for me, that was very... Much better than Stallone? Yeah, uh, Stallone, it, it it sort of had the trappings of Judge Dredd, but it didn't feel like a very Judge Dredd story. It felt like a story from somewhere. I mean, they had a lot of the continuity characters dropped into it, like a meme machine and what have you, but it still didn't feel really like a Judge Dredd story to me as a bit of a purist and having worked on Dredd in one form or another for 30 years. You know, the moment he takes the helmet off, it's game over. Um, yeah. And what I liked about Carl Urban is like he said, no, no, no. They said to him, you know, you have to keep the hat on. He's like, I'm not doing it if I take the hat off. That's that's not how Dredd works. That's not the nature of the character. So absolutely yeah. right. Um, so, no, I thought, I mean, considering the, the constraints of budget and other factors involved in the making of it, I thought it was very successful. It's one of the few examples of a film that, for me, I actually was willing to pay money for 3D because the way they shot it and the way they had the slow-mo, the special effect they had in the film, the drug that characters used, made 3D absolutely jump off the screen. And most films, you know, 3D just feels like an add-on to make extra money out of you. But for me, the, the Dread movie really used 3D really well. That and uh, Gravity is the other one I really liked for the way it used 3D. I thought that was very effective. And, that, and the character was absolutely bang on. It had the feel of, as soon as they get inside the building, it had the feel of Judge Dredd. When they were driving around on the motorway and people were in, like, you know, VW combis, it felt like we are in a Men at Work video. But um, <laughs> once they got indoors, I believed it was Judge Dredd. Um, so that was fun. Mm. Yeah, so I, yeah. it's a shame that they didn't it didn't make enough to generate a sequel. But they're working on the TV series, uh, Tales of Mega oh, okay. City One. So that's coming. I think that's Netflix has got money in the skin game of that. So yeah, so I think that's on its way. Um, so yeah, that'd be good. Now another saga that you were a part of that you actually picked up from where another writer left off. Which was the Temple of the Gods saga. Oh yeah. Um, now, from memory, I think Tony V. Paul wrote parts one and two, which were in the newspaper, mm-hmm. and then three, which was in uh, the Egmont or the Team uh, Phantom Ends, and then you wrote parts four, five, and six. Uh, do you remember anything about that? Were you were you tasked to like follow on with those or? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was slightly an old one because I'd sort of been I'd, I'd come off a, a whole bunch of spin-offs of of Kate Somerset with her son and the underground murders and uh, the Empress of India and all that stuff, uh, and then I did Cersei's Island, which was a two-parter, which I don't think was my best work by any stretch of the imagination. I think we could safely say didn't quite work that one. Um, which one was that one, sir? Uh, Cersei's Island. That was a two-parter. Uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, yeah, I, I think that one's best forgotten. Um, <laughs> okay. And then, yeah, I think Ulf was like, oh, well, the storyline's been started, the Chamber of the Gods. So he was sending me uh, some of the background materials of that, and and I think I got sent, like, partial plot lines or something for those. So that was quite... There was a lot of extra material was sort of handed to me and used this and said it here. So that was a bit, it felt a bit more like, uh, we'll give you some of the stuff and then you take it the rest of the way. So I did Chamber of the Gods, um, uh, which one is, oh god, I'm, I'm struggling to remember some of these now. Thirst? 
so and then, then I did when the beasts awaken. Beast, uh, yeah, now I've actually just recently reread Thirst. That was another one where Spadara had some fun um, drawing Loathing. female bodies. <laughs> Is that um, the one that's sort of that vaguely was... vampires or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a really interesting like story. Like to this day, I still don't know what to make of it. Like it, but I, I, I don't know. It was it was a, a different story. Yeah, I think that one. Let me just open up this document here. I think that was uh, Lindahl had wrote the original synopsis for that. Yeah. So I think it was Hassie Lindahl had written a synopsis for Temple of the Gods Five Thirst because I've got it here, and it's like the Eighth Phantom as Walker boards a ship bound for Cadiz there to pick up another ship for his final destination. Venice, and then there's a hurricane, and then things occur, and there's like a seven-year-old, this stuff, I don't know, I, wow, I'm not remembering this at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you've written 46 issues, they do slightly blur together, and there's something to do with a woman and futile revenge, and it's legends fair. about vampires and humans drinking blood to get eternal life spread around the world. So that was the original, so yeah, the plot line for that, the synopsis, so that was by Hassie Linda, uh, okay. and then that was given to me, and then I worked on that, and he did the same for, it looks like he, gave, he did a plot line for Chamber of the Gods 6, or the, he did the original plot line for that, and my job was to run with that and then turn it into a uh, script. So, yeah, he, yeah. Did, he plotted it all out, and then I was just given the job of scripting it. Uh, yes. So how does, like... You know, I know a job's a job. Hmm. Um, you know, and it pays the bills and and everything like that. But is it? Do you find it like more res- restrictive, restraining, or you know, was it just like, hey, I'll do it? Um, I mean, my preference is to to write my own stories from start to finish. Like most writers, you want to you know yeah. have do your own work, have yeah. the own thing, come up with your own ideas and pitch them. But it was sort of you know they needed somebody to write these scripts, and for whatever reason, has he couldn't or didn't want to do it and so the the job was offered to me and i was like yeah okay it would be interesting to work from somebody else's plot i mean the reality of course is that when you're writing for a character like a like the phantom you are working in somebody else's sandpit you know i mean it's you know we go back to lee falk he's the man who invented the sandpit and it's been mm. you know looked after and nurtured by king features for decades and then by uh, Semek and then egmont for the scandinavian stories ever since so it's like with the Phantom, it's like somebody's giving you the keys to their sports car, and you get to take it out. You get to drive it as fast as you want. You get to have fun with it, you know, pull donuts, do whatever you want. And as long as you bring it back intact uh, and you haven't completely smashed it up, then fine. Okay, then you get to have fun with it. So you are playing with somebody else's toys, effectively. Mm. So there are constraints. There are things the Phantom does not do. And that therefore that you would not write into a phantom story. Uh, so that you, anytime you're writing a, a licensed character, a pre-created character like that, you have to go in with respect for what's been done before, respect for the rules and boundaries of the character. And you have to write the best story you can to the best of your abilities within those constraints. So that's the job, first of all. So then if somebody says, okay, and here are some elements we'd like you to include, like, uh, for the longbow hunters, it was, uh, Ulf said, well, this setting, this longbow, and I'd like it to be the English Civil War, go. And then you do the rest. 
So some stories were all me from the start, but even then, it's all me, but it is the Phantom in the Phantom universe in whatever part of history. Yeah. So you have help, and sometimes you have uh, additional elements that you are asked to include, and you know that's the job. And then your job is make the best the best story that you can. I think there were a couple of others that were like that. I think it was the one I think that, that was Bob the year one through. Uh, and yeah. I think that was from somebody else's script, and that was uh, the Doomsday Ship, maybe that was. Yep, uh, and Eye of the Hurricane. And Eye of the Hurricane, yeah. Both of those, I think, were supplied. Uh, yeah, that was uh, Lindell. Plot. Was part of the Year yeah. One saga. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so those were both Lindell plots, and then I was given those and then run with those, basically. So, yeah. Mm. So I think both of those were sort of a similar situation. So off and on over the years, I've, I've had that. But given a choice, uh, I will uh, make my own good or bad stories up from scratch. <laughs> so The Phantom has been very popular in Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that we haven't seen more stories from, you know, written about The Phantom down under? And Is it just because... Like you said, Australia is just a big empty desert of nothing, and so those are your words, not mine. I would like to visit Australia again some point in the future, and I don't want angry Phantom fans standing at the gates of you know, yeah, um, uh, Kingsford Air- Airport going ah. So uh, no. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's certain practical difficulties if you're doing historical uh, Phantom, then you know. Uh, are you are you really going to have Phantom hanging out sort of years, in the yeah. conflict fields or in the gold fields? There's only so many of those stories you can tell. Um, so that's slightly limiting. And if you do contemporary stories, well, then you also have to realise any contemporary fandom story, you have to come up with a, a justification for why he's in Australia or New Zealand that holds some sort of water that's credible. And then you have to inject them into the story. So he is, yeah. you always have the problem with the fandom, like, oh, I've gone on holiday. Oh, look, and there's a murder. Every, he's like yeah. the Jessica Fletcher of the world, you know. It's like wherever he goes, it's robbery he wrote. Um, so you always have the difficulty, Can you know, I think I did that in the Red Zone. Uh, Diana's like, does this have to happen every time we go on holiday? Really? Every time? <laughs> so you sort of have to, you know, flaunt the imperfection occasionally. Go, yeah, right, yeah, let's, uh, let's all just acknowledge the fact that wherever the fandom goes, something bad is going to happen. He is like the ultimate curse. Um, I did use a terrible problem whenever I went on holiday to a place within 12 months something terrible would happen in that place and I was like eventually Interpol are going to start joining the dock and Gary Bishop Bishop's in town watch out he's obviously scouting for something I'm not if anybody's listening I am not scouting for anything um, but yeah you are going to New Zealand in a week as well so <laughs> yeah well, somebody got there before me um, so uh Yes. Uh, so yeah, so you always have to think about that. So I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't have more Phantom stories set there. It's just you have to think. Well, the reality is that the Phantom is based in Bengali, and therefore this of Bengala, and then the stories are around that. And then there's the ongoing continuity of, you know, Sandal Singh and the Singh Brotherhood and all these other things. So you have to stop all of those stories to go and tell a story set in Australia or New Zealand. So how often are you going to do that? I mean. To me, there should be more. And if Rue are producing original Phantom comics, then surely they've got the local knowledge and expertise, or at least the local reference material. So, mm. to me, it, that's a no-brainer. Well, there's, been, there's been a couple more. There was um, 
Oh, uh, Dale McCanty uh, recently did one uh, where you know where he visited um, Australia and he shipped out from Australia to work on a on a on a boat and stuff like that as well. Um, and I believe there's been a couple of others as well. So um, yeah, um, oh, yeah, I'm sure we will see some more. But yeah, I I, I think. A lot of fans that I've talked to, and I'm not going to say every fan, but a lot of fans that I've talked to kind of like say, well, the fan visits Europe every second week, mm. but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't kind of visit Australia as much. Well, yeah, but equally, he doesn't spend a lot of time in Brazil. True. True. Although we did just get a fan story where he did visit Brazil, like literally this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Next up, Argentina as well. I don't know, Guam. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, well stamped. <laughs> All he maybe is just like Jason Bourne and got 30 of them. Um, Kit Walker so, in different languages. Yeah. So with um, with your red zone, I probably might make this one of the, la- the last couple of questions because I know we've got a bit of a time restraint. Yeah. Um, with... With the fan visiting Christchurch and stuff like that, is it hard to place the phantom in a real-life environment? Like, could you put the phantom in a place with, you know, like something like that, or even going to the extreme with, like, terrorism? Or, you know, is is there a danger of putting a character in a real-life place that's fresh? It's it is tricky. I mean, it is because you have to think about you know if you place them into like actually during the Christchurch earthquake or during a terrible terrorist event like we have plenty of in the world, unfortunately. I mean, you know, you have to think about real people's lives are being actually impacted, not just the people who die, but all their families and their friends are impacted by that as well. And to then sort of you know insert a man in you know a purple or a blue outfit and with the underpants on the outside running around punching people, you sort of go, is this the story you want to be telling about this right now? Um, so I don't. It's tricky. I think you have to respect the feelings of of people who who have uh, who have suffered in those situations. And do you want to be exploiting uh, those sorts of you know grief? Uh, just yeah. to tell a story. Is that the nature of the stories you want to be telling? So, I mean, I was very conscious of that with the Red Zone story because, you know, mm. it's like more than 100 people died in, in the big Christchurch earthquake, the second one. And you sort of go, well, you have to risk, you have, you know, and you know, I've got friends who live in Christchurch who lost their houses and, you know, had their lives in peril and all the rest. You think, well, I don't want to write anything that's just insulting to them or to the memory of people that they've lost. So that's why Red Zone was deliberately set two or three years after to give that distance and to give a sense of, you know, a city moving on and healing and slowly rebuilding and sort of finding itself again. Because to me, that's, Mm. that seems like the right time to tell that sort of story. You know, I mean, it's the problem that uh, superhero comics had when nine 11 happened is where you've got Superman and you've got, you could, you know, he can fly around the world and shoot heat rays out of his eyes. Why didn't he stop them? You know, so you get into these yeah. sorts of conversations and how do you respond to those situations because it makes, you know, men in tights and capes who can fly seem a bit ridiculous because they don't stop real-life events because it isn't. It's fiction. It's it's a hyper-reality version of reality. So where does truth 
or facts stop and where does the fiction begin and when do you choose to tell those stories so it's it's tricky i think it's a matter of conscience and and best judgment as to what you do with that um so yeah i was very conscious of that with red zone and deliberately tried to tell a story that showed the the positives that have emerged from that experience and nonetheless uh the you know the but still show the situation as it was for the fact um, I mean, yeah. the Red Zone story was based on a apocryphal story I was told by a friend of mine who lives in Christchurch of how there was this apocryphal story that there was a cash machine. There was a, you know, there was a hole in the wall, a cash machine, an ATM in Christchurch that they couldn't remove from a building because the building would collapse and it was meant to be completely full with cash. Oh, so, wow. so it was meant to be like tens of thousands of dollars stuck in this machine. And the reality is even two years after the quake, when, when last time we were in Christchurch, all you needed to do was have a hard hat and a high-vis jacket and a clipboard, and you could go anywhere, and nobody questioned you because there were people with hard hats and high-vis jackets and clipboards wandering around the city constantly because that was the job, because they were still pulling down and rebuilding and clearing and assessing everything. So actually, a high-vis jacket was just like a free passport into anything in the city. Oh, wow. So I just went, well, hang on. Rather than the ATM full of cash, because that's not going to be enough to attract the Marshall sisters, they've got slightly more magpie tastes. Um, you know, they're going to want jewels and something that's easier to transport than a hundredweight in New Zealand dollars. Whereas if you can get priceless uncut diamonds, then that's easy to smuggle. Um, yeah. So well, I'm thought, saying that the Australian dollar, the Australian dollar and New Zealand dollar is pretty close in uh, parity these days. Oh, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so it's a case of, uh, you know, trying to think, well, okay, so, all right, so we have the story of the cash machine full of cash. Mm. I observe the fact that people can just wander around wherever they want if they've got a high-vis jacket. So is this not the perfect opportunity for a criminal to go, mm. right, jobs are good. So have you, has there been other stories that you've written that have just, like, come together from an experience like visiting Christchurch and seeing an ATM full of money and people walking around with free passports with a high-vis and stuff, because that's, that, that's just sounds you know, amazing how there's these just different elements that, that you've observed. And then sort of like, the, story. yeah, the sort of the light bulb sort of ping off in a mm. row in the brain. You go, aha, from here to here to here, insert the phantom, and then what happens? And then da-ding, yeah. away. Um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm struggling to think of any examples off the top of my head, because um, <laughs> always the way. But, yeah, it's just sort of oh, just simple things that inspired. Like a lot of the stories I've been writing is the Fru published a very handy sort of guide to the history of of the Phantom a while back, um, just in a little comic book supplement that they did. And it's sort of like characters of the past. And I think that's where I saw the Marshall sisters. And I went, oh, they look great. Let's bring back the Marshall sisters. Um, and then I think the other one I uh, pitched... Um, uh, was going to bring back another character that, that pre-existed. But just things like that, or, you know, the Phantom Peak, you know, that giant mountain that looks like the head of the Phantom. And so that's, I want to do, like, north by northwest, if I want the hen- the Phantom hanging off the nose of the giant statue of the Phantom, because it's just a cool visual, really. Yeah. So it's just moments like that, you just go, what if the Phantom was having a fight on top of the giant head of the Phantom? Go okay. Now, how are we going to justify this in a story to get so that I've <laughs> so got? So you've got, so you've got one scene of the Phantom hanging off, and then you create a whole story 
based yeah. around that one scene. Yeah, I think that, is that I think that's a Sandal Singh story with like a Zeppelin or something in it. Oh, I, I, I don't know. You've got me. I've got a feeling it got that. I could be imagining that, but I, I think. But that's, that's, that's amazing that you've that you've got a whole story about, uh, around one scene. Oh yeah, we just I you go. It. This would be just a that real. You just think because thing is you want to come up with a visual that an artist will be looking forward to drawing and I go oh yeah this is going to mm. great a giant a fight on top of a giant thing and it's just going to be a really cool visual to do uh so yes there was one story I always wanted to do and I never managed to sell it to anybody which was I wanted to do a story and it's a bunch of uh criminals like five or six criminals in a room and they're all talking about uh their experience they've all got the the skull mark on their face where they've all been punched by the Phantom at some point in the past. And uh, and I always wanted to write a story with just five criminals, and they're talking about the Phantom, and they're planning how they're finally going to get their revenge on him. And then one of them will just, you know, pull the mask off and reveal it's the Phantom. He's been there the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that would be interesting. I could see that way. Just a sort of a series of flashbacks of, oh, well, yeah, I could have, yeah, you know, yeah. just... You know, five guys walk into a bar and they're all, you know, talking about the Phantom and they're drinking. I'll, I'll get him next time. I was breaking into this bank and I don't know how he... I opened yeah. the vault and he was in there waiting for me kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I could see that. And you're sitting around a seedy bar and... Yep, I like it. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the Phantom stories I write have sort of been uh, one of the key influences as I read uh, when Frank Miller was doing Daredevil in the late 70s for Marvel Comics. And it was all sort of, it was all quite, uh, his version of Daredevil before he did Sin City and The Dark Knight Returns and all of that. He, the first superhero he really did was Daredevil, but he did a very sort of street level version of Daredevil. And there was all these supporting cast of characters who just hung around in bars and things and got punched through the window of bars constantly. And I really like that, the idea of a street level version of the Phantom. And we just get to see him from the point of view of the criminals for once. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a story called the Psychopath, where it's um, uh, a guy is being visited by someone in a mental institution, and so he's in the mental institution. He's got the skull on his face, and then he talks about what you know. Basically, he's crazy because he's been beaten up and stuff, and so he retells the story of of him getting the skull mark and. And so you, you'd never really see the Phantom. He's always in the shadow, or you might see his eyes there, or you know. So it's from their point of view rather than the Phantom's point of view, which you described as get uh, before. And it's just one of those stories that has always stuck with me because it's something different. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's why I think the Kate Somerset stories resonated with people. Mm. I mean, at times it was sort of pushing the envelope from the Phantom into romance. Effectively, you know, it was it was quite heightened. The, her her sort of memories of her life and her feelings towards various versions of the Phantom. So it was quite heightened. But I think I think what made it stand out was the fact that it was it was showing the Phantom in a different way and it yes. was seeing it from a different angle and it sort of portrayed it in a different way. Um, so yeah, I quite enjoy stories like that. I mean, I like a good straight straight ahead Phantom slugfest, but I also like it when he's having to be a detective. Uh, and I like it when you get to see the Phantom completely from the outside, and he's just this shadowy, legendary figure that appears and disappears from people's lives. Because I think that's an interesting way of uh, tackling the character. Yes, no, definitely agree. Um, 
is there, is there anything else you wouldn't mind making mention of? Um, uh, Phantom related or anything else related or anything? No, like? no, I think that that's probably about it for the moment. Um, yeah. For the moment? Yeah. We've got yeah. some more, 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 I'm, um, I'm sure there's more, more questions more to be eyes. asked at some point in the future, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so if people want to follow you, you've got a blog, uh, viciousimagery.blogspot.com. Yeah, although I don't, I've hardly updated there. If they're going to follow me, I'm, it's easier. I'm, I'm most active on Twitter these days. Uh, so I'm just at David Bishop. At David Bishop? Yes, I've been on Twitter so long, I've got my own name. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah, you can usually tell when people have signed up. (laughs) Right, yeah, because it's like, oh, you're David Bishop 37. Oh, okay, sorry about that. It's amazing that uh, there's a lot of David Bishops in the world. Most of them seem to play some version of rugby or league and um, or have done in the past or refereed it. But every now and then somebody will, I get copied in on long chains of tweets. I'm going, I don't know what David Bishop you're looking for, but it really isn't me. <laughs> I am I am original flavoured David Bishop. I'm just at David Bishop and that's it. No worries. Well, we appreciate you... Um uh, spending some time with myself and answering some fanboy questions. Uh, some of these questions were from myself, uh, also from uh, Dan and Stephen and a couple of other um, uh, readers and uh, subscribers as well who um, dropped some questions in. So I, I appreciate uh, your time today, uh, today or tonight, depending on what time zone you're in, Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, no, I'm, I'm very happy. No, sorry, enjoyed. Uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, so uh, from myself, from the team, uh, thank you for your time um, and happy founding and we look forward to your next story. Wow, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know I did. I learned a lot about the Kate Somerset series that I did not know about before, plus everything else that we talked about as well. So let's hope we get to see the Phantom back in New Zealand and also Australia. Thank you again, David. As per normal, you can support us with Patreon. At $5 per month of one of the levels of Patreon that you can support us with, you get access to our P3 Phantom Preservation Project. With that, you get access to all of these newspaper articles, videos, audios, uh, newsletters, fanzines, uh, and a lot of other type of cool stuff that we've gleaned from the internet, which we give access to you guys, so you can also add it and learn stuff with your collection as well. Now, we also have a competition with our Patreon supporters. This is only for Patreon supporters. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you go in the competition to win a Don Newton book. Yes, a Don Newton book that was recently published by Herms Press. We have a brilliant interview by Dan and some of the guys uh, that's on our YouTube and on our website as well. So if you're not sure, go have a look at it. And if you want to be in the running for that, you know what you need to do. You need to support us via Patreon. That will be drawn at the end of May. So there still is time for you to be able to do that. Okay, you can follow us at our website, chroniclechamber.com. You can email us, chroniclechamber at gmail.com. We have our social media links with Facebook. We have Chronicle Chamber Phantom fan page and Phantom Collector Group, which we are also admins of. Twitter, we have at Chronicle Tweets. Instagram, at Chronicle Chamber. And of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or apps like Podbean, Player FM, CastBox, Listen Notes, etc., etc., so you can get access to our um, 
our podcasts as soon as they hit the airways. So until next time, happy phantoming. 500 years ago, he washed ashore the sole survivor of a shipwreck. And upon the skull of the man who killed his dad, he said, I'm mad, I must eradicate piracy, injustice and cruelty. And all my sons will follow me, so evildoers will believe that this man cannot die. The Phantom, the ghost who walks, the enemies beware. The phantom's always there, but you won't find the phantom.